Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a child and adult holistic psychiatrist and functional and environmental medicine physician. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking again about the vagus nerve, an amazing tool we have in our body that we can use to access calm and that we can strengthen to promote our healing and well-being. In the last episode, I discussed the ways chronic stress, early attachment disruption, trauma, toxicity, and just modern life in general can impact the vagus nerve. I also described the many roles of the vagus nerve and how it influences our social interactions. Today, I'll be going over signs and symptoms that may point to vagal nerve dysfunction. I'll talk about heart rate variability, which is a measure of how well the vagus is working, and I'll talk about the many ways we can improve the functioning of the vagus nerve. I would describe these strategies as the most life-affirming and fun ways to promote healing and well-being. And again, the reason we should want to improve vagal tone, as we call it, is because the vagus is what dampens that stress response. And it's that stress response that leads to a cascade of hormones, inflammation, and the expression of certain genes. All of these are what lead to disease. No less important is that the vagus puts us in a calm state, something that we're able to share with those around us without even thinking about it. It allows us to engage socially in meaningful ways, to be creative and to be focused and to feel compassion. So I'd like to start with talking about signs and symptoms that can point to vagal nerve dysfunction. And to make sense of these signs and symptoms, remember that the vagus nerve is a cranial nerve that leaves the bottom of the brain and travels down the neck into the chest and abdomen, sending off fibers to almost all of the organs, but also to the other cranial nerves that supply the head and neck. And in those fibers is information coming from what we're seeing and hearing in our environment to let us know if there's a threat, and also from our organs. Also, there's information going out to many of these cranial nerves and to the organs. So as as we think about these as six particular categories that primarily are affected, the first would be cranial nerves, then the gastrointestinal tract, cardiovascular system, the immune system, psychiatric symptoms, and then muscle tone, so the musculoskeletal system. So other cranial nerve dysfunction, so again, the vagus is a cranial nerve, and by itself it can cause symptoms, but because of its relationship to other cranial nerves, it can also be impacting some of what those nerves are influencing. So one particular sign could be a lack of a gag reflex. Another could be hoarseness, problem swallowing. Uh, When you go to a doctor and they look at the back of your throat and they're having you say, ah, when you do that, your palate or the back of the roof of your mouth rises. Back there also is a piece of tissue called the uvula that hangs down in the back of the throat. And if when you say, ah, the palate is pulling to one side, that could indicate some vagal nerve dysfunction. 
what should happen is the palate should elevate symmetrically and that piece of tissue, the uvula, should stay in the middle. Other signs could include um, intermittent blurred vision, um, ringing in the ears, if the vagus nerve is impacting the cochlear nerve, vertigo, which can be measured by having someone stand with their eyes closed and seeing if they sway, clenching of one's teeth or TMJ, uh, problems with social communication, which we might see in children with autism or even those with depression. And this can be indicative of how someone's using their neck, eyes, hearing, speech to connect with another person. So deficits could look like turning away, lack of eye contact, an absence of speech or a mechanical sounding speech. Sensory processing issues can be indicative of a vagus nerve issue. And here it might be sensitivity to bright light, sensitivity to loud noises or certain odors. So moving on to gastrointestinal symptoms, constipation, bloating, SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, candida, leaky gut, food sensitivities, irritable bowel syndrome, and or inflammatory bowel disease. Those could all, be because of the many ways that the vagus nerve influences the gastrointestinal tract, all of those can be associated with a lack of functioning of the vagus nerve. And now moving on to the cardiovascular system, someone can have high blood pressure or blood pressure that's too low. If the blood pressure is too high, that could be indicative of that sympathetic nervous system, that fight-or-flight system, over-functioning. And since the vagus and the parasympathetic is what counters that, if the vagus isn't working, then someone's blood pressure can run too high. We can also, however, have blood pressure that's too low, and that's when a particular aspect of the vagus nerve, which is the primitive aspect, is being overactivated. Now, what we want is the ventral aspect. That's sort of the healthy aspect that's calming us. But again, we can instead, when we're in a state of stress, go into fight or flight, blood pressure goes up, or overwhelming stress, the dorsal vagus can be activated, resulting in a drop of blood pressure, and this might look like fainting. Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, is also associated with this dorsal vagus response. I mentioned the immune system's also influenced by the vagus nerve. So autoimmune conditions, systemic inflammation, mast cell activation, that's where mast cells, which are part of the immune system, are easily triggered and releasing inflammatory mediators that can affect random parts of the body. And as I mentioned in the last podcast, the vagus nerve, by by dampening down this stress response, it's the stress response that's triggering inflammation. What the vagus does is keeps those mast cells in check, keeps them from producing cytokines or inflammatory mediators, so when it's not working, again, we can have inflammation. 
Psychiatric symptoms can also occur when the vagus nerve isn't functioning. And this is because, again, of the way the vagus dampens our stress response. Without that, we could be in a state of a fight or flight chronically, so this could look like anxiety or episodes of panic, or we could have that immobilization response where there's a shutdown, and again, this would be the dorsal aspect of the vagus nerve, and this might look like depression, dissociation, depersonalization, or derealization when we think things aren't real or we feel like we're outside of our body. Lastly, muscle tone can be an indicator of the functioning of the vagus nerve. Remember the sympathetic nervous system is what the vagus is opposing, and it's the sympathetic nervous system that has our muscles ready to fight or to flee. So if the vagus isn't working, then we're in a chronic state, our muscles are, of, of tension. So vagal tone is what we call a measure of how well we're accessing the vagus nerve. Now, you can assess this yourself by putting your fingers on your wrist to check your pulse. So with your, say, left, if you're right-handed, put your left palm up and take the pads of the three fingers of your opposite hand and place them on that soft space just below your hand, between the tendons and the bone. And if you notice, if you press lightly, you should feel your pulse. Now, when you feel safe and your autonomic nervous system is working optimally, there is a slight activation of the sympathetic nervous system on inhalation, which causes our heart to beat a little faster. And when we exhale, the parasympathetic nervous system causes our heart rate to decrease. The difference in these two heart rates is referred to as heart rate variability. So you should be able to notice this. Now, many of us can have good heart rate variability when we're thinking about it. But usually, as we're going throughout our day, we aren't breathing deeply. We're likely often holding our breath. For example, it's very common while looking at screens for us to hold our breath. But also, when we're thinking stressful thoughts or when we're learning something new like an instrument where we're, much, where we're very much in our heads, we will often hold our breath or our breath will be very shallow. So again, heart rate variability is how vagal tone is measured. This is considered a measure of how well we're balancing our emotional lives, a basic measure of our health and fitness. If we have low heart rate variability, which we'll talk about how we can improve upon that, this is associated with a number of medical conditions aside from the things that I've mentioned earlier, but it is a predictor of future health problems, including obesity, high blood pressure, heart disease. There is evidence that it can, that low heart rate variability can predict cancer, cancer metastases, and the mortality of people with cancer. And basically our heart rate variability will decrease with age. So 
even more reason to be incorporating tools into our lives. There are devices available to measure heart rate variability, including uh, particular chest straps that you can find online, and often athletes will use those. I use an earlobe sensor along with an app called Inner Balance from the company HeartMath. And I can tell you when I'm using it and consciously practicing adequate breathing, my heart rate variability is excellent. But when I sit down at a computer and have it on, my heart rate variability is very poor when I'm, for example, checking um, emails or social media. And for me, it's when I'm at the computer that I'll start to develop uh, muscle tightness, soreness, likely due to a lack of oxygen, but also likely due to the overstimulation of that sympathetic or fight-or-flight response that's not being countered by appropriate breathing. So finally, how can we improve the tone of the vagus nerve? And this is called accessing the vagus nerve, activating the parasympathetic nervous system, or it's also called balancing the autonomic nervous system. So when you hear those different um, terms and phrases, those are all referring to the same thing. So remember, as with anything, the more you do something, the more easily you can do it without great effort. And this is because of neuroplasticity and the way that our nervous system, sort of the more we use something, the, the more those neural networks are reinforced and developed. So if we're able to do this with the vagus nerve, that means being able to relax faster when we're under stress, and it means optimizing all those systems that we mentioned. There are many ways to do this, and there will be more than I will list here, but I break down the ones that that I've been thinking about in two categories. One category is passive, meaning it doesn't require us to necessarily do something, and the other category is active. So just starting with passive approaches, and these don't require any conscious awareness other than, firstly, to put our body into a safe place. So when our body is in a safe place, that's countering that fight or flight or that stress response. So one way we might do this is through meditating, um, praying, or other contemplative practices will do this. So this basically means we're removing ourselves from things, people, spaces that can lead to stressful thoughts, which then stimulate our sympathetic nervous system. So meditation being one example you know, our eyes are closed when we meditate. We don't have reminders of things we need to do. If we're sitting quietly and not having stressful thoughts, for some people it's difficult, and I can say this was the case for me, to sit down and meditate because things that I was worried about would be coming into my awareness. So for many people, using guided meditations can be very helpful in that regard. And my own preference currently is a morning and evening meditation by Dr. Joe Dispenza. And in these meditations, he will tell you where to place your attention. 
and it's moving your attention from focusing on areas of your body to then broader areas outside your body, alternating convergent and divergent attention results in brain waves slowing down. And when our brain waves do slow down, then we're much more able to access the vagus nerve. Another passive approach is to be with people that we feel safe with, people that we have positive social interactions with. This improves vagal tone and with that our mood in a number of ways. And again, to remind you, the vagus is connected to the different cranial nerves of the head or neck. And so as we're accessing those cranial nerves, we're actually stimulating the vagus nerve as well. So when you turn or lift your head to look at someone, that's the accessory nerve. When you're looking into someone's eyes, you're using your optic nerve. When you're listening to them, you're using your cochlear nerve. And then when you're speaking back, the vagus nerve is involved in that as well as indirectly involved in the others. And again, when we're modulating our voice, that's using our our cochlear nerve with hearing. And better yet, when we laugh, we're directly using our vagus nerve. And when we're making facial expressions or eye contact, we're uh, using our vagus nerve. And even, too, when we're, va- when we're visually tracking, we are as well. So collectively, all of these nerves being used is down-regulating that sympathetic fight-or-flight pathway. So safety is obviously key here. If we're feeling threatened by the person that we're with, our sympathetic nervous system, even if we're not thinking about it, will be predominating. And if we're not even outwardly having anger or, or fleeing or shutting down, physiologically, we can still be having the stress response. So... These passive approaches bring up the issue about social distancing due to COVID-19, and I suspect this is having um, pretty significant effects on our collective mental and physical health uh, for all the reasons that I just mentioned. For people who are living alone or who are spending more time isolated, this, this can be problematic. It's not known how video conferencing or Zoom calls, for example, compared to -to face-to-face interactions in this regard. In many ways, there would still be the intention to connect, the act of looking at a trusting person's face, hearing their voice, talking to them, making facial expressions, hopefully laughing. All of this would be impactful. But what could be missing are unseen energies and likely subtleties in these types of interactions. Now, as far as conscious things we can do to access the vagus nerve and change our physiologic state, uh, deep breathing would be one. And ways to do that would be to breathe deeply from the diaphragm. And this is so... to, To do this would involve your stomach expanding out before your chest and then having a slow exhale. So this could be three deep breaths and using that as a way to interrupt the fight-or-flight response or building that throughout your day at different times of transition. Uh, I'm currently working on a breathing technique by 
Wim Hof. Uh, he has a nice technique that he describes on his website. It's free. And it's a breathing technique that you can do lying down. And I'm really finding it useful to counter the extended times that I'm needing to spend for my work on the computer. Singing, chanting, or humming. Uh, the vagus is connected to the muscles of the back of the throat and the vocal cords, so like breathing exercises, singing requires extended exhalation relative to inhalation. But here, we're also monitoring sounds, so again, using um, other cranial nerves. You might have seen uh, Cody Lee. He was a young man on the American Idol who is blind and has autism. And if you did see him, you might have noticed that when he was singing, which was really beautiful, you wouldn't know that he had autism. However, when he was not singing, his social communications were much more evident. He had somewhat mechanical um, way of speaking. Similarly, uh, many individuals with stuttering or or who have tic disorders, these symptoms for them can cease when they are singing. Humming and gargling can also access the vagus nerve. Laughter, you might have heard of laughter therapy, laughter yoga. You might have heard of the study of people with diabetes. They had them watch an hour, I believe, of comedy. They monitored their blood sugars before and after and found the beneficial impact on their blood glucose levels. Uh, postural shifts, so this could be dance or other movement. For many, just like singing, the idea of dancing can sound daunting and even start to trigger someone's stress response. However, you don't have to consider this as performing as much as just starting to be in your body and feel what it means to move. And somehow music with the rhythm allows us to, to do that more easily and in a more fully embodied way. So you could just be sitting at your desk and turning on music and just starting to rock and sway. And there's no, you know, we associate dancing and singing with performance, and this is not what this is about. Even if you have low energy or even pain, there are many ways to start to move to music. Uh, there is a really interesting TED Talk by Frederico Bitti, B-I-T-T-I, who had a movement disorder called cervical dystonia, which is, was quite severe, causing his head to be pulled down to one side, which affected his posture and his gait. And he discovered that when he danced, his symptoms remitted. And this became his therapy. Uh, his talk includes videos of him with his prior symptoms and without while he was dancing. And then you can obviously see him giving the TED Talk where you wouldn't know that he had had cervical dystonia. Yoga is another movement that would include postural shifts but also attention to breathing. Dr. Stephen Porges noted that contemplative practices, including postural changes such as kneeling, seem to access vagal tone. And this was by way of baroreceptors. These are receptors in the arteries that pick up changes in pressure that are created by postural changes. 
So while we've assumed that kneeling is a show of reverence for a higher power, it may actually have originated at least in part as a means to physiologically accessing another state of mind and body, one that would be much more calming and compassionate and connected to our larger humanity. Cold treatment is another way, and that could be exposing oneself to cold on a regular basis to increase parasympathetic activity. This might look like um, finishing showers with cold water, putting one's face into cold water, stepping outside momentarily into the cold. This is not a strategy that I'm spent a lot of time on. Personally, my preference has been dancing, singing, and again, meditation. For those of us who are on the flexible side and have flexible connective tissue, which I've talked about on, on my website in a few places, and which relates to a vulnerability to both psychiatric problems, but also things like chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, uh, those of us who are hypermobile bend our bodies rather easily. So now while I'll avoid yoga because I don't want or need to stretch any more than I'm already able to do, I will dance and I do move fairly easily. Similarly, our vocal cords move more easily. Vocal cords are part of the connective tissue. Tools one can do on their own or with assistance would be tools that are in Stanley Rosenberg's book, Accessing the Power of the Vagus Nerve, Self-Help Exercises for Anxiety, Depression, Trauma, and Autism. These exercises involve the cranial nerves and they take about 10 minutes a day. A massage can stimulate the vagus nerve and increase vagal tone. Foot massage specifically has been shown to increase vagal tone and increase heart rate variability and decrease the fight or flight response. Tapping, or EFT, emotional freedom technique, and this is where you tap on particular parts of your face and upper body while thinking about thoughts that you've been having that are creating a stress response. Then you recognize the feeling that you're having in the body, and essentially you're changing your narrative. You're changing your story that you're telling yourself. This is much easier to do when you're tapping on these areas and basically accessing calm from the body, which is what this intervention and all these interventions do. Other um, strategies that would involve professional involvement, and I should say EFT or emotional freedom technique, there are therapists trained in that, um, which could be particularly helpful for someone who's had trauma. Tapping, Nick Ortner has a book about, a lot of books actually, in an app and a website where he is teaching people how to do tapping. Frequency-specific microcurrent requires someone who is trained in FSM. I myself am trained, however, because I'm primarily doing online treatment through telehealth, uh, it's not something I currently provide, but I'm very familiar with it. It has also been used to access the vagus nerve directly, but also to address structural issues impacting the vagus, such as adhesions and other downstream effects of vagal nerve dysfunction. 
in the last podcast, I talk about upper cervical instability and uh, adhesions and other structural issues that can be affecting the vagus nerve. The FDA has approved surgically implanted devices that periodically stimulate the vagus nerve. There's also non-invasive vagal nerve stimulators. I don't have as much experience with vagal nerve stimulators, though, again, my experience is more with frequency-specific microcurrent. These stimulators, however, have been used and are being studied in refractory epilepsy, depression, PTSD, inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, cluster and migraine headaches, obesity, bipolar disorder, and Alzheimer's. If vagal nerve dysfunction is due to structural issues such as tongue tie, mouth breathing, or upper cervical instability, which I talked about in the last episode, those would obviously need to be addressed by appropriate specialists. The last intervention is one that we all have the ability to impact, and that would be our microbiome, the trillions of microbes in our gastrointestinal tract. Because of the bi-directional nature of the vagus, a healthy microbiome is key. When you're eating clean, you likely feel more calm and more patient with those around you. This is likely due to problematic microbes thriving on sugar and carbohydrates. The more of those microbes there are, the more toxins our body is perceiving as a threat, and the more our sympathetic nervous system is working and our parasympathetic nervous system is not. So I share all of this information to encourage you to access calm from your body. Still, many of us will want to use our brain. So we can use our thinking brain to make a habit of sitting ourselves down in a quiet place and exercising our vagus nerve. Your ability to access calm is always with you. Practice and you will become less reactive physically and emotionally. And when you do become stressed, as we all will at different times, you'll recover and return to balance more quickly. This takes time. You can also use your thinking brain to notice your physiologic state throughout the day. Is your body telling you to fight or flee, or did it just cause you to check out? Does it feel calm and safe? Did your neck just become tight? Did you feel your heart rate pick up? Are you holding your breath or breathing faster? Such awareness takes practice, especially in our culture. When you do notice one of these changes in your body, then go to your brain and wonder, what is my body trying to tell me? If Is there something I need to pay attention to or do something about or not? After noticing, then go back to your body, specifically your autonomic nervous system, the vagus, and ask it to help you get back into equilibrium. Part of our ability to self-regulate comes out of our earliest years and our attachment relationships. A secure attachment with a good enough responsive caregiver in our early life is what allows us to have good emotional and physiologic regulation, even if this regulation is derailed by events and exposures in our lifetime. The same holds true with our connection to our body. 
A consistent tending to our need for safety is essential for healing and maintaining well-being. If you've lived in a chronic state of stress, it takes practice to learn to self-regulate and feel safe again or for the first time. If you struggle with complex chronic illness or a psychiatric condition, you could do everything perfectly, whatever that means to you, as far as diet, supplements, medication, removing toxicity, and sources of inflammation. And if you haven't learned to access the vagus nerve, you still may struggle to heal and thrive. I hope I've given you reason to become that nurturing caregiver, the kind who repeatedly reminds your body that you are safe. And I hope I've given you a good reason to sing and dance. Thank you for listening. I hope this information was clear, useful, and interesting. If you'd like to read more about the vagus nerve or learn more about the growing understanding of root causes into psychiatric conditions, visit my website at CourtneySnyderMD.com. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. I'm always happy to get questions and topic suggestions, so please feel free to reach out.